0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is October the 22nd, 2018. This is episode 2313 of the Survival Podcast. Because it's a Monday, it's time for, you know what, a listener feedback show. This is where you send me an email. You send the email to my actual email account, which is what? Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You know, I've actually had people tell me, like, I wanted to email you, but I wasn't sure where to email it to. I have to have the most available email account as far as knowledge and accessibility on, on planet Earth. I have been doing this show over 10 years. I have been giving out that email address since the first day I did the show, and folks, it's a real email address. It doesn't go to somebody that I pay $7 an hour to sit in a room somewhere and and, and eat Twinkies and drink beer and figure out what I'm supposed to read. I read, at least look at, every email that comes there, especially if you do what? Put T-S-P-C in the subject line. If you do that... I will definitely find it, even if it goes a week where I get lazy and don't check the spam box as much. I will dig it out eventually. I will find it. I will look at it. If it's customer service, I'll get back to you. Sometimes, if you send me an email for a show and it's a simple, quick answer, I might even email you directly or you might hear your stuff on the air. But TSPC in the subject line. Here's what we have to talk about today. One, I shouldn't have to say this, but do not backfeed a generator to the grid. We'll talk a little bit about that because a lineman just lost his life trying to help people in Florida because some dumbass did it. Uh, dealing with hawks as predators uh, in, in relation to ducks, chickens, and things like that. Um, using Facebook to promote your ban- brand and business. And I'll talk a little bit what I've learned over the years and what used to work and don't work so well anymore and why you should do things a little differently today than you should have, let's say, five years ago. Um, When are kids old enough to be involved with butchering and slaughtering animals? We'll talk about that. I'll give you my take on it, but of course it is an It Depends answer. Uh, Getting off to a good start on a new job. I think that's a good one for everybody because sooner or later we all have to do that. Tornadoes have shifted to the east and El Nino is coming. Here's what it all means. I'll play you a segment of a weather broadcast. Talking about this, and we'll talk about, you know, what they get right and what I think they're getting wrong and what the overall writing message is and what it means for you as an individual. Um, we'll talk about how the private market killed a government monopoly, just killed it dead. But in doing so, it hurt the people that bought into the monopoly. We'll talk about how that type of disruption is only going to continue. Uh, and I'm gonna do a little segment called Logic and Reason versus the honduran flag yeah we're going to talk about this caravan of 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 refugees coming here from honduras but in a different way than you might expect unless you saw a little bit of what went on over the weekend with a conversation on my personal facebook page and uh, we then we have two stories from listeners uh about suicide and i'm going to kind of skip that all the way to the end because they're going to go in line with the song that i've picked out uh from a contingency list from john adam for today and uh it's a subject we don't talk about a lot. We probably should talk about more. Because what's the first rule of survival surviving, right? Don't die. Well, if you kill yourself, you break that rule. And there is a disturbing number of people choosing that way, uh, to to at least in their opinion, end their problems. And I have some thoughts on that for you for today. And you know, those thoughts may may release somebody that needs to hear them. And that may save their life. But more likely what would happen is the thoughts that I have might lead you to recognize something in somebody else and, and just say one simple thing to that person, and that may save their life. And you may know it, or you may never know it. Or may, it may be in some of the instances such as my own where years later a person may come to you and say, you said this one thing, and it changed everything for me. You might not find out about it for five years or ten years or more. And we'll have all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ReadyMadeResources.com. Look, ReadyMade Resources is the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go. Easy to point, click, and buy on their website. Great pricing, great service, and they got it all. I mean, they got everything. You want to do solar, you want to do wind, you want to do small-scale hydro, they even have stuff for that. You want to, you know, you need some 12 volt stuff to go with your your basic simple uh, solar system. They got all kinds of 12 volt appliances, really cool stuff. They've got food, you know, that you can store like in mountain house and things like that. But they also have like all the stuff you need to store your own food, dehydrators, mylar bags, o tubes, you name it, they got it. They got it all at Ready Made Resources. As I say, the practical to the tactical. Guns to Gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at the company that does what it says and says what it does, readymaderesources.com. Next up, um, I have always been a fan of herbal medicines. And I think that learning to use herbs, not just to treat illness or injury, but as a preventative and a tonifying thing, um, I think it's one of the most valuable skills that we can learn. And I'm all for growing herbs in our backyards. And I'm all for learning the wildcraft herbs. And I think all of that can be done safely and it should be done as part of what you're doing. But there are certain things that just really don't really work out well for self-propagation in a meaningful level. And some things it's just easier, you need them now, etc. Sometimes you might need components to make an herbal remedy. Let's say beeswax or menthol crystals, which provide that heating, warming, cooling thing like Bengay does, right? If it's herbal and legal in the United States, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. And if it's something that can help you concoct a formula, you'll find it there, too. You can buy it pre-made. You can buy raw herbs. You can buy materials. And you have real people that really care about you that will answer the phone and help you with your customer service needs if you have any. You can find it all at westernbotanicals.com. And they have a great program. It's their discount uh, program. It's 50 bucks a year. If you're an MSB member, you get it for free for the first year and half price there after that. That one membership benefit alone pays for your MSB membership by itself. On top of it, it gives you a 25% discount on anything you buy from our sponsor, Western Botanicals. So even if you went out and bought it, it would probably pay for itself. But they really support us. They have now for over seven years. Uh, I love dealing with them. I love having them. You give them a try. You will not be disappointed. And before we get into your feedback, I have made good on my threat, and I have set up a discount code for you guys to join the MSB. MSB is a great deal. It's always been a great deal. It always will be a great deal. 50 bucks, and you get discounts that pay for uh, your membership easily. Over a year, the the seeds, the trees, uh, the herbal stuff. I mean, everything that you probably use in your prepping needs, there's probably some solution there for you. And so it just makes sense. But I'm going to do a great deal. The sale I'm running right now, the discount code is FALL18, that's F-A-L-L-1-8, really easy to remember, FALL, like it is, 18, the year that it is. FALL18, you get $20 off your membership, but it gets better. It gets better, you also get that price forever as long as you stay an active member. It will apply to your recurring membership, you can go to the website to sign up, the thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members. There's a post about it there. Again, the discount code is FALL18. If you want to pay by mail, on the sign-up page, there's a place where you can download a form to pay by mail. Do that. Just write the code on there. We'll honor it. Uh, additionally, if you pay with silver, we'll just give you, like I think it's like two two more months per year or something like that. Uh, whatever it works out to, what the discount is, I think it's actually probably three months. So you get an extra quarter per uh, year that you pay for with silver. Uh, if you want to pay with silver, if you want to pay with cash, you just adjust down. You want to pay with crypto, email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC, NSB in the subject line, and I'll hook you up on how to do that. Tell me what kind of crypto you want to pay with, and we'll take care of you manually. Okay, I always have to say this when I want a sale. If you are an existing member and your account is active, you cannot renew early. I would love to be able to let members renew early. The system and the way payments work, with automatic payments and all, will not work. It will not work. I am not Verizon or AT&T trying to screw my new customers. If you really, really want to do it, email me and I'll work it out for you. Okay, uh, But it's a manual process and it's not ideal. It's not an optimum. But it's not because I'm being a jerk. I know I could be a jerk, but in this case I'm not being a jerk. With that, let's take a look at the day in history. Uh, it's a complicated one, but I'm just going to go really quick on it. With some stuff, because if you want to read the whole article, uh, I've been getting these day in histories from history dot com, and uh, you can just go to the go to the website, look up this episode, and there's a link so you can see this. But today in 1962 was the the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, but not really. The, the 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 real crisis actually began on October 15th, 1962. That's when U.S. intelligence personnel analyzing U2 spy plane data discovered the Soviets were building medium-range missile sites in Cuba. The next day, President Kennedy secretly convened an emergency meeting of his senior military, political, and diplomatic advisors to discuss the ominous development. The group became known as XCOM, short for Executive Committee. After rejecting a surgical airstrike against the missile sites, XCOM decided on a naval quarantine and demanded the bases be dismantled and the missiles removed. On the night of October 22nd, Kennedy went on national television and announced his decision. During the next six days, the crisis escalated to a breaking point as the world tottered on the brink of nuclear war between two superpowers. Um, and it did end up working out. And like I said, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. Um, but here's the upshot of it. During all this, while well, we're like, hey, you're, you're putting missiles there. Turned out we we had missiles in Turkey. And the Russians found out and we ended up agreeing to withdraw those and they were gonna withdraw from Cuba. That's how this all ended. The bigger thing here though is I think there is definitely a bifurcation in our world today of people and their how seriously did they take war. And I think it's maybe a trifurcation. The big one is this moment. If you were alive and conscious and paying attention to the world When this happened, then you look at the threat of nuclear war completely different than anybody that that was too young or wasn't born yet like me. Because it was real, and it was imminent, and most people thought it was going to happen. And yet people didn't go nuts in the streets and riot. My grandmother and grandfather were stationed in Lebanon. He was still in the United States Army. He was an intelligence officer. He was convinced it was going to happen And one particular night during this crisis in particular, they were pretty sure it was going to happen then. He and my grandmother got a bottle of wine, went up on the roof, they had like a flat roof deck, and sat there and figured if it was going to go, let it go. They had a glass of wine together, they stayed up late enough, when nothing happened, they went to bed and figured maybe things would be okay, and eventually, of course, they were. If you've been through that experience, you have to view this differently. The next group is people like me. Gen Xers, tweeners, people that are on the second side of the baby boom, etc. We lived through the 70s and the 80s where we were pretty convinced sooner or later this was going to happen. In fact, some of the extravagance of the 80s, people going into debt and blowing lots of money, was directly because, hey, sooner or later they're going to nuke the place anyway, so we might as well enjoy our life. There was an attitude like that. If you went to school in that time, you had drills where they said, get under your desk and cover your head. And if you went through that, you have a total different view of the potential for war and what it really means than the current generation. Not because they're bad or anything, they just haven't experienced it. It's not real to them. It's not inside them that, hey, giant mushroom clouds could erupt everywhere. And we didn't believe that back then just because of propaganda and, and imagery. We believed it because it was a thing. It was a reality. And I think it's why there is a significant difference in Gen X versus the Millennials and what's coming next Gen Y. It's just a life experience thing, and it's not like a totality, like how long you've been around. It's what you went through and what you understood about the world. And if you're in a younger generation, I think that a lot of stuff could benefit you to understanding how your prior generations feel um, as to what World War III would be like. One would be a, a, a made-for-TV miniseries. I think you can find it online for free now, called The Day After. It was a two-part miniseries that happened in 1982, I believe. It was 82 or 83. I know it was in grade school and Catholic school. It was like second grade or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But I know that the next day the only thing kids talked about at school was that movie and how scared they were. Ronald Reagan himself started pushing more with Gorbachev uh, and the Soviets for a missile treaty that we now are talking about getting out of um, after seeing that movie. It disturbed him that much. And then I would say some of the other things you could do is like on Netflix, you can watch the original Twilight Zones. And if you go watch the first couple of seasons of the Twilight Zone, like every third one of them is about potential nuclear war. And it might help you have a better understanding of where you come from because you come from us. And I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying understanding each other is probably a good thing. With that... Let's go ahead and uh, and get into the main topic of today's show. So Dylan Allen, who we had on with us uh, to talk about nuclear power, uh, sent me an email. He said, "Please put this out on the show as soon as possible. Backfeeding a generator without interlocking it from the grid is against code for a reason." The lineman from North Carolina, from Park Electric, who went to Florida, was killed last week. See highlighted part of the background below. Do not backfeed the grid with your generator. Disconnect your grid service before turning on the generator. If you don't understand what this means, learn before you hook up your generator. He says some more stuff, but that's really all that needs to be said. This is the, to me, there are two ways that you can safely use a generator for backup power in your home. One is you run extension cords and plug shit in, and two is you have a certified electrician put in a hookup point for that generator that isolates your house from the grid while the generator is in operation. There is no third, fourth, or fifth answer to that. You do one, or you do the other, or you don't do it, and you don't think, well, I'm smarter, and I can make a suicide cable, and I know to just throw this switch, and then it'll be okay. No, bullshit. Because people's lives is more important than you thinking you're smarter than you are. If you are not a certified electrician that knows how to do this shit, don't screw with it, because this man is dead because somebody thought they were smart enough to do it, so don't do it. That's all I'm going to say on that and we'll move on. Uh, I have a question on hawks as predators. Uh, Dave sent me an email. He says, do you have a problem with hawks taking the ducks on your farm? I keep pigeons here in New Jersey, and the hawks are all over me. wonder if you do anything to help keep them away. I was thinking uh, about getting this uh, one, the inflatable 20-foot tube man, blow up to to scare them away, but that would seem kind of crazy in my backyard. It might seem crazy, but it also might work. Um, We have different situations here. A pigeon is a bird that weighs about a pound, maybe a pound and a half. I guess some big pigeons might be close to two pounds. uh, An adult duck's going to weigh five to seven pounds. Pigeons fly. Ducks really, the kind of ducks we're talking about, don't. So it's probably the case that as much as you're having problems with hawks, you're having problems with falcons. And falcons are predators that will take other birds out of the air now hawks can some hawks can do that but they really prefer a ground attack most falcons are you know air to air combat specialists kind of so to say and they they really do uh, a a hell of a a job killing pest pigeons you don't have pest pigeons but the hawk or the, the hawks or falcons don't really know the difference And in the northeast where you are, there's been a lot of work done to provide habitat for urban falcons because they do help control the pigeon population. Um, And if you do that, then you're going to end up with more falcons um, outside the urban areas because as they breed and multiply, they're going to move outward. Uh, We've also had wholesale protection of all birds of prey under federal penalty, and they mean it and they're serious, and you get in a lot of trouble for killing one if you get caught. To me, I think that's a mistake, but we have to deal with it because this is not one of those laws to just ignore because it's an incredibly costly consequence, and your pigeon is not worth the risk. Um, So I can't really tell you any way to eliminate the problem uh, that would be legal and and not risk serious consequences if you were to be caught. Um, So you you have to deal with deterrent. And one of the things that keeps our, our birds well protected is our dogs specifically Charlie. Charlie knows the command, bad bird. And he's laying down here, so I can't really keep saying it very much. I'm going to say BB from here on out. I don't want to upset him and get him barking. Uh, But whenever I see any large bird, I'll say, Charlie, BB, BB. And I will point him at that, and I will make a sound like, oh, and and some other things I won't do because he'll get all going. And that's really all it took to train him. And, you know, I didn't try to train him. This is a hawk, and this is a BB, and this is a falcon, and this is a BB, and this is an eagle, this is a BB. And that's a crow, and you really don't need to worry about it. Dogs, I'm sure somebody with enough time could actually train dogs to recognize individual birds. Um, But I also have problems with things like blue herons taking fish out of my my garden ponds and stuff like that. So the blue heron is also a BB. And the fact that that dog, he's, he's not always out there. Like right now, he's sitting here under my desk. But any time of the year where I I think we have more problems and the birds are unprotected, he spends most of his day outside. And these birds are creatures of habit. They come back over and over again. And that's why they're a problem. You may not have as many of them as you think you do. You may have one or two that have figured out, hey, hunting's good here. And so now that they know that spot, they're going to continuously want to come back to it. So if you have any way to use a large canine, it could be beneficial I'm really not sure what to do there, though, because if you're flying your birds, and you probably are, because pigeons, you know, they they do that, they kind of need that, Um, then when that bird's airborne, that dog's no help. So that's what I do. Um, Anything you can do to kind of scare them away or deter them would be a good thing um I, I I used to love having Chris Starr, who is an animal uh, pest specialist that flies falcons and hawks and stuff like that uh, as a resource but he's he 's moved and he 's got a full time career and stuff so i i generally don 't throw stuff like this at him at this point but uh I wonder you know I know one of the things he 's said is you know make the area feel like it's a danger to the animal. Like they don't want to be down there because something's going to get them. Exactly how you do that when you're flying your birds off your property, I I really don't know. If anybody has any suggestions on this, I'd love to hear them. Uh, Again, I use canines. I use well-trained canines. And, you know, that hawk, we have mostly Cooper's hawks around here. And what works well for us is, you know, a Cooper's hawk is not a big bird. And if they kill a full-grown adult you know, mallard breed duck, they can't carry it away. They have to eat it where they kill it or they have to pull part of it off and then go away with that part and leave it and come back. And when that dog is going nuts and barking at him and running at him, they just feel like this place is bad. So one way or another, that's kind of what you got to do, Dave, is you got to figure out how to make that bird have that attitude of, like, bad place, bad place, I need to go somewhere else. Um, So uh, that's all i got. I'm sorry that I don't have uh, more for you, Dave, at this point. Next up, I have a question from Daniel. Daniel says, do you have any recommendations on merging our current uh, farm Facebook page that's primarily pictures with my soon-to-be blog? Details, I'm about to start a homestead-related blog, and I was planning on merging our current farm Facebook page with it. It is primarily just pictures that my wife posts almost daily. I want to merge them. Uh, we We still put pictures as a post on the blog as well. Or just make the Facebook, Instagram individual think. Thanks, Daniel. Well, I don't know about merging them. I, I think the, the term you really want to say is you want to use both. So if you're using Instagram and you have a Facebook page, and it's a, you know what Facebook calls setting up a page uh, for your business, then I imagine what you're doing is you're posting them to Instagram, and you either have it set where your Instagram posts immediately go to your Facebook page, or you do what we do, which is we have it set up where our Instagram posts um, go to our Facebook page, but they uh, they, they don't auto post, so not everything that we do ends up on um, on Facebook from Instagram. But they're all there, and you can just click and share, right? And so you're probably doing one of those things. If you're going to be, what you're saying is in your blogs, you're going to be posting these pictures as well and blogging about them. What you should then do is instead of directly posting the pictures to Facebook, post the article as a share to Facebook with the picture featured, as long as there's going to be some kind of commentary, and link that back to your blog. Because Facebook is owned by Facebook, and Instagram is owned by Facebook. They can change the rules anytime. so you want to push traffic. The only reason to do your blog is to create a, a hub that people see as you, And they might interact with you mostly on Facebook or Instagram, but you want to get them over there at some point, come hang out, fill out a form to get on your email list and things like that, so that you can actually build your customer base up. However, you know, I said they can change things, and they have. So, I would put zero effort into building a Facebook page today. Zero. I didn't say I wouldn't have one, and I didn't say I would put zero effort into the management of it. I would put zero effort, though, into the building of it because they screw you. I have about 110,000 followers on Facebook, and I'll put up a post, and somewhere between 400 and 2,000 people will see that on my Facebook page. Um, Let me check so I don't under or oversell what we're at on the forum So we have just over nine thousand members on the uh, Facebook group, and um, you know they—that's that's that's what ten percent. That's not even ten percent of the number of the people that follow the page. If I put up a post on the forum, I get tons of comments. I get tons. I don't get to see how many people saw it. They don't give you that metric. But I can see how many people come to my blog from it, and I can tell you that the the 9,000 person forum kicks the ass out of the 110,000 member page, and, and the reason is simple: Facebook wants to sell you access to your own people through advertising on your page. They can't really do that with forums and they would or, or groups, right? Because it's, it's member interactive. And they probably could come up with a way where you could get more people to see it, but it's it's not really going to work for that arrangement, at least for now. So I would put all my work into growing a group. And all I would do is use your page for where your shares start, and then share your page to your group. But on your blog and everything you do when you say follow me on Facebook, point people to your group, not your page. Because your interaction is higher and people will talk to each other. And when you can get your people talking to each other, they stay engaged with your brand while you don't work. Right? And then you can see what they're talking about. And then they talk to each other. And they talk to each other differently than they would ever talk to you. And you understand them better. And then when you engage with them there, they feel more like you're engaging with a person or an equal than some third-party company anyway. So I think it works better all around. If I could go back in time and have had built my entire Facebook presence as a group instead of a page, I would love to have been able to do that. Um, I, I it, but the thing was back when I started building the page, it worked really good. But as it changed, you know that's that digital sharecropping model. So that's how I would run the Facebook program. Right, you take your posts from your blog and drop them into Facebook and share them there, and do your page to a group. You even call the group the same thing, but put all your effort of building to the group you know at the end of every post say you want to keep in touch with us on Facebook and talk to other people who love our farm go here and join our group just make a little byline and and every single post with that you know push people you're priming the social media pump that way I would also say on Instagram I find the interactivity on Instagram to be amazing compared to other platforms at this point I have over 30,000 people on YouTube I have a measly 26, 2700 or something like that. So Starty took over and started running Instagram about a month and a half ago. So in a month and a half, we went from nothing to 2,000 people plus, right? Almost 3,000 people. Um, but when I put a video on, on, on Instagram, I will get about the same number of views of that video in the first 24 hours as I do on YouTube. And that's what's promoting YouTube, like putting it on the blog, putting it on Facebook, all that other stuff. Like... Almost half of the people that follow us on Instagram watch every video. If I did that on YouTube, then I would get you know almost 20,000 views on a video when it goes out. So all of these things play different in their dynamics, so I would make sure that you're working all of them and over time find the ones that the people that like you like the most and put your efforts there. So it's really not emerging, right? Um, now, Instagram pushing people to a website, it's complicated. Um, the best way to do that's with the stories feature, but they don't let you b- build links into your stories until you get up to 10,000 followers. So, in the interest of not going into a whole podcast on social media today, I'll just say kind of you need to be thinking about that. You know, use the term link in bio when you do posts on, uh, on Instagram. Follow our Instagram to see what we're doing. Uh, our Instagram is It's a Jack Life. And if you're following Jack Spearco on Instagram, you're not going to see nothing. There's one video there that says go to It's Jack Life. I have one just so when I comment on our Instagram, you know it's me versus Dorothy. Um, But you can see how we do things like Dorothy posts the photo from my show every day and tells people about it and says link in bio. So we're, again, driving people from the world of Instagram to the world of the Survival Podcast. The only reasons that you do social media is, one, the people that already like you and know you want to communicate with you in it. And two, to get into warm markets that you're not into, to find new people to pay attention to your business, not so much your Instagram account. People paying attention to your Instagram account, if that's all they do, makes you no money. It does nothing to build your brand. It does nothing at all. You don't own that. Somebody else does. People interacting with you on Facebook, unless there's something more to it, does nothing for you. It, It works for Facebook. It helps them, not you. When you pull them through to where they engage with you personally and they engage with you in, in a business manner of some kind, and you actually obtain the ability to contact them outside of these social media reams through uh, email or what have you, then you start to actually build the asset within your business. So merge is not the right word. it's It's an integration, I guess, with how all of the mechanics work. I hope that makes sense. Let's go on to another one. This one comes from... Uh, Brianne, I guess that's how you say the name, Brianne. Uh, Brianne says, At what age should you let a child be present calling animals on the homestead? We have a two-year-old son. My husband and I have different feelings about letting him see it. I feel the sooner the better. This way it will be less of a shock because it's just the way it's always been. My husband feels that we should wait until he's older and able to reason. We would both love to hear your take on the subject. Thanks. Brianne, I agree with you. I do not want a child... To watch an animal be harmed until that child is old enough to have a conversation with and fully understand why we harmed that animal and how that animal is different than other animals we're not going to harm. It's not about you know will because it's not about will they be able to handle it will it will it damage them etc. It's that it might and since you can't have the conversation yet you don't know if it did. Because what you're doing is having reverence for a life form that will sustain you. That's what you're doing. You feel this animal's life is valuable even though you're taking it in exchange for what it will do for you nutritionally. And the reason you're doing this is because animals are treated very, very poorly in factory farms and in factory slaughter. And you're going to do this with as much humanity as you can and as quick and efficiently as you can, and as little pain and suffering and stress as you can, because you totally value that animal. A two-year-old, all they know is there was a chickie, he was alive, and now he's dead, and daddy has blood on his hands. So I agree with you. I do not agree with your husband at all on this. That once they can have the conversation, then it go, switches to, it depends. When do they feel they are ready for it? Okay, that's That's the shift that takes place then and and what i have done is let's start with butchering not slaughter so the slaughter's done the skinning's done we now have an animal that needs to be broken down into parts okay and then we, we kind of ease into it. And you can even do that with if you, if you, if you buy a chicken that's a whole ch- whole bird and you're going to break it down. Start your kids with, this is how we break down a chicken, and this is its leg, and this is its thigh, and this is its wing, and this is its breast. Because that makes the connection. Okay, this is an animal. This used to be alive, and that starts to, the process in the right direction. Is that what you should do? I don't know because I don't tell people how to raise their kids. I'm just telling you this is what I've done over the years. With my son, I'm now doing it with my grandson. My, my, grand, my, my granddaughter is two, same age as your kid. I would never, ever kill an animal in front of her at this point in her life. Because I can't explain to her what the difference is. And either it's going to hurt her, or it's going to make her think harming animals is okay, when maybe we should not. So if I kill a chicken in front of her, what is to prevent her from thinking, well, he might kill one of the dogs next. Or it's okay to hurt the dogs. Now, will she think that way? I don't know. She may not, but I can't yet have the conversation. Here's why we do this. Do you want to be part of it? And most young kids will say yes, but until they do, they're not ready. And what you're doing when you're putting a... you got to remember, this is, I think, a problem people have. Your kids are little human beings. They're not kids like they're separate from adults. They're little human beings. And on some things, you know, not all things, but on some things, they have a right, as much as any other human being, just because they're smaller doesn't change this, to make decisions about what they're exposed to and when. And taking a life is serious. It's a serious thing. And it can have psychological effects. I've seen people cry the first time they, they slaughtered a chicken. And when we ran a workshop here and people did that, I made sure before it ever happened anybody gives anybody shit about any kind of an emotional reaction here, I will throw your ass off my property and I won't apologize for it. I didn't think it was going to happen, but I wanted to make damn sure people knew it, and I wanted as much for people to be comfortable with being who they really were in that situation and not feeling bad for having sorrow for taking a life. And that's something you walk into with open eyes or you don't do it. So it's not so much, well, she's young, it's you can't have that discussion, and the, the it, it, let's say it's a 10% risk that your child would take this and, and, and have some kind of a complete misunderstanding about it. I think it's higher, but let's say it's 10%. Is it worth a 10% risk just to make your life a little easier if it works out? I, I don't think that it is. And I think if you really look at your kids and you really think about the fact, like, would I want somebody to put me into this situation before I was able to understand it and be okay with it, you won't do it. And I don't think you have to argue about it with your husband. I think all you have to do is let him hear what I had to say and let him think about it. Let him think about If I wasn't ready for this and somebody put me into that position, how would I feel about it? Then look at your kids and realize you're looking at not just your, not just your young child. You're looking at a, a, a full human being. That has the same types of thoughts and dreams and, 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 and ways that they can be damaged emotionally that you do. In fact, more so, they're in a state where they are more fragile emotionally. And a child that doesn't understand why daddy's killing something, all they know now is daddy will kill something. Maybe daddy would hurt me. I know that you never would. But you don't know what goes on in those little minds. Think about some of the things they say, some of the things they come up with in this two to three-year-old range. Where do they come up with that? They come up with that because they're a thinking, fully developed being, and they just don't have the way to explain it. Why do you think they get into tantrums at this age? For no reason. Not because you told them they can't have a candy or a cookie or something. Like they're just playing and they're trying to do something, and all of a sudden they have a tantrum. Because they know what they want it to do, and they can't figure out how to make it happen, and they don't know how to explain it, so they react with anger. So you don't know what that reaction will be. Don't do it. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't put anybody down that did, but if you're going to ask my advice, no, don't. It just—it's not worth the risk. Okay, we have John here in Pittsburgh, not John in Moore Park, who we hear from a lot. Uh, different John. He says, "Go Steelers." He also says, "I start my new job next week. What specific actions should I take in the first week to be sure?" I'm off to a good start. I did well as an energy analyst for eight years, but recently left the role after 11 months where I struggled, and I could not get up to the performance level expected of me. I want to be sure this does not happen again. Thanks for all you do on the show, John in Pittsburgh. Well, John, it's a good thing to to go into a new job and want to do well. Uh, I think one of the things you always have to be careful of is you can learn from failures of the past, but don't drag them with you. Like, unless this is the exact same job, there is no reason to believe that, you know, with what you were doing, you're going to have any problem doing this new thing. Or even if it's the same thing, did you really have problems or was what was expected of you beyond your ability? And are you in a place now where what's expected of you is what your ability is? It doesn't sound like your, your problems in your past job were due to a lack of effort, rather a lack of talent. Um, and that could be – a lack of talent isn't always a negative thing. Some things you're just not good at. I promise you if my job was running the 50-yard dash against other people, I would be one of the poor, most poorly compensated human beings on planet. I am slow for a white boy, okay? And I was slow for a white boy when I was 20 and in the best shape of my life. And I'm in my mid 40s now, and I have some, some, some physical impairments like a busted knee, a busted shoulder, you know, et cetera. And I, you know, I I don't weigh what I did back then, et cetera. So, um, I'm not good at running. Um, I'm actually still pretty good at distance running. I was always good at distance running, but the sprint, I just don't have any, any speed, right? So, I have a lack of talent in running. It doesn't mean that I can't do something athletic, right? So, I don't since I don't really understand what an energy analyst does and exactly how you were judged. I can't really speak to, you know, why you didn't perform at the level you wanted to or were expected to. What I can tell you is everything now is about this new job. As an employer, this is one thing I don't want to see in the first couple of weeks with a new job. You better not be late. You better be early. Number 2, I don't want you to be overly enthusiastic to the point where you're a pain in my ass. Like I want you to Like, I hired you, I believe you're capable at what you're doing. Of course there's maybe some level of training or indoctrination. I want you to take that, I want you to be serious about it, and I want you to get to work. And over time, I think that the way you really do well in a job is you you try to learn the culture of the company and fit, fit with it well. You try to learn the things that you could do beyond what you're expected to do and do some of them. And do some of them frequently. If every week... John is doing one thing I didn't ask for that makes my life a little bit easier as his boss. John becomes my rock star. Even if John doesn't work as many hours as Tom, if Tom only gives me what I asked Tom for, and John gives me a little bit more, I'm impressed with John. I am highly impressed with John. John is who I then want to start working with as a mentor. That's another thing. I mean, but you can't do this in your first week, John. But looking to have mentorship at your new places of employment is a great idea. Um, Bosses generally, not always, most bosses, most managers have gotten to where they are because they're good at what they do and they're they're reasonably good leaders. A lot of times I hear people shit-talking managers and bosses, and I'm like, those are all people that have never done the job, and they don't have an effing clue. Because when I was young, I didn't either. I had no idea. I thought they had it made. It looks like they have not made. When you step in and you're responsible for a department with, you know, 38 salespeople in it, oh, oh, yeah, it's two o'clock and you're still working and they don't, they're, they're, they're done hungover and went to bed. Okay? So the problem becomes they want to be your mentor, but they're also always trying to keep their own job. The higher you go, the harder you have to work just to keep your job because the more you're responsible for and you control a lot of what you're responsible for, but you don't control a lot of what you're responsible for. There's things that your employees can be doing that you're unaware of even if you're a good manager, right? And and they can cause problems. And by the time you find the problem, it's like a cancer and you got to go fix it. So you have to have a balance of, of wanting to work with your boss or even their boss or someone kind of... to to a lateral of that position or something like that with, you know, what are the certifications that I need? What are the classes I should take? Stuff like that. But you also don't want to be a pest. And it's a delicate balance. So um, it's about finding the right time and the right way to speak to them. It doesn't work in every situation and for every person, but I've found my best relationships with people I've worked for and have worked for me take place after hours and away from the office. Having a beer or two with somebody on the way home from work goes a long way. Uh, It really does because it lets you see that person as a person outside of work, and you form a bond, and now you're a friend and a colleague. And and I will say this. In spite of that, (laughs) friend I guess maybe is too strong a word with what I mean when I say you're my friend. If you're not in my cell phone with your name on it, And when you call me, I won't pick up. Like if I let you routinely go to voicemail, not because I'm busy, but like I will always let you go to voicemail. If I won't call you back as soon as I have the time, you're not a true friend, right? That's a very short list for me. And I tried to not have too many of that close of a relationship with people that I work with because it's kind of the don't shit in your backyard type of thing. It really is like you can get too close to people with work, so I will have a beer with people. I will talk to people. I will chat. You know, if it's the right situation, you have some kind of an outing, uh, team building. All that's fine. But when I go home, like the people I really spend quality time with are people probably not in work. There's been some exceptions, but they're definitely exceptions. So balance what I'm saying there with kind of backing off a little bit as well. Don't don't try to make them into your the person you hang out every Saturday with. You know, I really like spend that time with your family and your, your, your true close network of friends. But the big thing is finding out, you know, one, step one, everything is expected of you, lock it down to where you can do it cold. Then, what are the things not expected of you that can be beneficial? And what are the things you can do to build your skill set in your industry at that company that the company likes to see? If you come in with that attitude, you'll do just fine. And don't, again, don't worry about your past issues. Because your past is your past. Today is your present. And it's what you actually need to be paying attention to. But you're right to say, hey, I don't want this to happen again. That, that's, that's learning from history. So we learn from history, but we don't drag history along for the ride. Okay, so next up, uh, John in Moore Park, other John, sent me an email. And he said, El Nino is coming. El Nino is coming. And uh, it's a link to a video, not an article, about some changes in weather patterns. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually play the audio of that video for you, because the video doesn't bring that much to the table anyway. And I'll come back with some thoughts on it. And my overriding thoughts are on really on preparedness beyond some of the political things that always seem to have to get involved with weather today. And I think you know where I'm coming from. So hold tight, and we'll uh, play this for you.
1: A taxi medallion used to be a great investment. More than a dozen cities sold these permits to operate cabs, and medallion values rose to hundreds of thousands of dollars, even more than a million dollars, in New York City. Then along came Lyft and Uber, and the market for medallions melted down. KQED's Sam Harnett reports on what that is doing to cab drivers in San Francisco.
2: Yana Kazirian's son looks just like his grandfather, Edward. Eddie. What's his name?
3: Eddie. Edward after my
2: dad. Yana's family is Armenian. In 1991 they came to the U.S. as refugees from Azerbaijan.
3: We got really lucky that the U.S. took us in.
2: Yana's dad Edward drove taxi. He loved it and dreamed of owning a medallion. These little tin permits used to be awarded on seniority but to try to balance the transportation budget after the 2008 financial crisis San Francisco started selling them for $250,000. That was still a good deal With a medallion, drivers could make between five and seven grand a month. Edward got a loan and bought one.
3: He thought, if anything ever happens to me, if I were to die, the family would be set. It was like his retirement plan.
2: But then Lyft and Uber flooded the streets with cars. They operated without medallions or a cap on how many vehicles could be on the road. That drove down prices for rides and earnings for all kinds of drivers. Edward's income plummeted. His blood pressure began to go up and he started gaining weight.
3: He became increasingly just restless and nervous, and there were months where they didn't have quite enough to pay all of their bills, and, like, I would help them out sometimes.
2: Two years ago, the family was out of town, and Edward stayed home to drive. He went to the airport like he did every day.
3: You know, his friends at the airport right away noticed something was wrong because he said, oh, I'm not feeling well, I'm going to go home. And they looked at him, and I guess he was, like, green or something, and... We're like no you're going to the
2: hospital Edward Zayorda had torn and he soon passed away he was just 59 years old the market for taxi medallions in San Francisco is frozen not one has been bought or sold for over 2 years the city recently held a meeting with drivers almost all of the drivers want the same thing for the city to buy back the medallions drivers like Inderjit Gotra and Magdi Youssef
4: me my brother, we bought six medallions in the beginning. We are under the water, uh, some family members are going to file the bankruptcy.
3: Yeah, We have no other option. I already suffered two heart attacks. I feel like I'm dying slowly. This medallion is killing me slowly.
2: Around 700 drivers bought medallions, making the city about $63 million. Over 150 of these drivers have now defaulted on these toxic assets. Kate Torin manages the taxi program for the city.
3: Kate Torrin, director of Taxis and Accessible Services, had a magic wand and could say this can all go away. Of course, who wouldn't want to do that?
2: The city's considering a few changes to Thaw and Medallion Market, but unlike New York City, it hasn't put a cap on the number of lifts and Ubers on the road. The city's also not talking about buying back the medallions, which Torrin estimates would cost $160 million.
3: That's not on the list of recommendations at this point. I think that's unlikely.
2: After Edward's death, Yana Kazirian's family was still plagued by their medallion. No one wanted to buy it from them. So they defaulted on their loan and took a massive hit on their credit. Yana wants the city to do something for the other drivers. Many are still out there on the road just trying to break even on the little pieces of tin they invested their lives in. For NPR News, I'm Sam Carnett.
0: Okay, so a couple things here. One, this whole shifting of the dry line, this is a real thing. This is absolutely a real thing. Um, I don't think it's, you know, anthropomorphic, global warming-driven climate change. It is a macro uh, climate shift, and they hit on it when they started talking about El Nino, do you notice what he said? Like, it's going to be drier in Texas and the Great Plains. And the the dry line where the dry, where the dry air of the desert meets the moist air of the Gulf is moved to the east, and that that has in fact happened. We've had a much lower incident of tornadoes in our area than we did a few years ago. But the, if you look at the tornado cycles, you'll see that they go up here and down over there, and then they go up over there and down over here, and you'll watch. Cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. People are familiar with the term El Nino. They're less familiar with the term La Nina. Okay? They're both names for basically children a girl child and a boy child. And I won't get into the whole thing about it. But if you go to Central America, and I've lived there, El Nino and La Nina are a lot more paid attention to because they have a lot of direct effects on the, the wet and dry season and how the weather plays out in Central America. Even more so than here. This is where that cycle comes from. And when we move into an El Nino cycle, we we, we move into a place where the center of the country, Texas, the Southwest gets more rain. And tornadoes and rain kind of look so right after he got explaining this, like this is a, it's gonna happen forever. It's going like it's just it's moved and it's there and that's where it's gonna be and they're gonna have to grow wheat instead of corn. And the pea brain reporter, other reporters, like, well it's not really easy to just switch to growing wheat from corn, is it? It absolutely is. It has. Most people grow both. Shut up. Like you might not be able to make as much money. Well, that's because you you, you don't turn wheat into ethanol yet anyway. Okay, so it's not that it's not a problem. It's that the way she, like, you can tell this woman knows nothing about farming. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but, it, like, this thing is like a permanent move. And then immediately thereafter, when he's talking about other factors of how this could work out with big snowstorms and stuff, he's talking about it raining more in Texas. Like he just said it's going to rain less in Texas. The La Nina-El Nino cycle is a macro weather effect. Maybe more accurately, instead of macro, a mega weather cycle. It is a huge cycle, and it has been going on for longer than human beings have been here. It is almost like a breathing cycle of this part of the world. And it's how the planet works. Okay? So I'm not going to get political with this about my thoughts on global warming. I'm just going to say this is a natural cycle in our weather system. And you can go look. Look at the touchdown numbers reported of tornadoes in places like Texas and Oklahoma. And then go look at the touchdown number of of, of tornadoes in places like Louisiana, Arkansas, and further east. and, And tally them up over the years. And you'll watch them ebb and flow back and forth. Okay? Also... The whole concept of, well, you know, they don't build the frames of homes as strong in, uh, in, in, like, Louisiana as they do in Texas. It's bullshit. They build everything the same. It's all crap. They, 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 they don't do much different in the way they frame houses anywhere in the friggin' planet now. What this means. And what they do have in places like Norman, Oklahoma. If you're building a home in Norman, Oklahoma, which is like Tornado Mega Central, right? Do you know what you do? You put in a basement. You put a basement in. And that's true all throughout what we traditionally think of as Tornado Alley, except where where I live in Texas, much to my again. I I hate that we don't have basements here. I love basements for so many reasons, including being able to go down there and not die. That's another reason I love basements. So one of the big issues is you move to these southeastern states, they tend not to have basements. That's part, that's a big part, in addition to the, the storms happen at night. Okay. And you get more rain wrapped, et cetera, tornadoes and less visibility and denser populated areas. But additionally, like people in tornado alley to have a basement, they know, oh, tornado warning downstairs. And the way they're building homes now, not just in, you know, Alabama, but everywhere. What do they say? Go to an interior room. There's no interior rooms. I've owned houses built as far back as the early, early late 60s. This house was built in the mid-70s, the one I'm in now. I had a house that was built in the 90s. I had another house that was built in the 90s. Do you know how many of them had an interior room, a true interior room? None of them. Everybody wants an open floor plan. There's no interior rooms anymore. That's another problem. So you have got to have a couple of things when it comes to tornadoes, and that's really why I played this to, to point out that, like people are like, "Well, Jack lives in tornado country." You know, you might li- do. You know, the state that has the most deaths by tornadoes in the United States every single year—not every single year, but if you average it off across a couple decades, far and away the winner, most deaths. Probably would never think, you're thinking like, well, Indiana, because of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, or Texas, right? Oklahoma. No, Tennessee. Tennessee. Because it's right where the storm... That's why rain's there. That's why everything grows. But it's also right where most of the storms tend to pass through. And Tennessee, in spite of what many people think, is a huge state. Yes, north to south, it's pretty small. But tip to tip, it's a huge area with a lot of dense population. And there's a lot of very rural areas trailer park homes and stuff like that, and they have the number one death toll. So a lot of people don't think about that. So tornadoes are a thing that you need to have on your list of things to be prepared for, and anything Texas East, definitely, and including the Northeastern United States. like Where I grew up, we never even thought about tornadoes, but a few years ago my dad wrote me a letter and told me there had been a, a, a huge tornado not far from my home. Now it wasn't what we think of as a huge tornado but it did a lot of damage and if it hit it you know if it if it had touched down a few a few honestly where it touched down if it would have touched down a few hundred yards one way or the other it could have really tore up a lot of homes and killed a lot of people but it happened to touch down kind of right in between everything and didn't really hurt people it just tore a bunch of stuff up that's that's freaking central pennsylvania so as these macro weather patterns shift, we need to pay attention to them. And what I'll stand on with this is it was about two years ago that I said, we're going through and will continue to go through for a couple years a tornado drought in the southwestern United States. And I'm happy for it, but it's temporary. And I said back then, it's the El Nino-El Nino La Nina cycle and that we would be about two years into it when we would kind of switch that back around. And this spring, I predict major outbreaks of tornadoes in the exact places that this guy just told you they're going to go down. Not because I'm Spiricodamas, not because I have a crystal ball, but because we're going to have a moderate El Nino cycle in 2019. And it's going to shift the dry line back. And the reason I know that is, One of spiritual laws of life is what? If you want to know what will happen tomorrow, look what happened yesterday. Everything is a cycle. This is a major weather cycle. But have a plan. Think yourself, if there was a tornado warning, what would I do? Because even if your answer is, like, you don't have great options, but you have options, you need to know what there are in advance, just like everything else. Someone recently posted on the... um, on the survival podcast forum on Facebook that we just talked about, what would be the number one item to have for preparedness? And I said, a brain. And then so the person told me it was a cop out. No, it's not. And he said, well everybody has a brain. Doesn't <laughs> mean everybody and he said, doesn't mean everybody uses it. Aha. Uh-huh, that's my point. The point of the brain is the human brain has the ability to plan at a level that no other being we know of. I'm not saying no other being that exists. I don't know what exists in the far reaches of outer space or whatever. I don't think we're alone in the universe. I really don't just by math and probability. But as far as we know it, no creature other than human beings can effectively plan contingencies for multiple outcomes. Yes, animals migrate. Animals respond to stimulus Animals look and make decisions. I've seen dogs, you know, like look between two things and make a decision. But they make that decision in that moment or that migratory thing is built into them genetically or in some way we don't yet understand. They can't, a dog can't sit down and say, well, my master might not come home today. Something could, he could get a car wreck. If my master's not home by the normal time, this is what I need. You can't do that. You have that ability And we need to apply that to all things that could happen. And don't rule out things that could potentially happen. We just had an earthquake. I don't remember where, but it was, maybe it was West Texas or something like that. It was somewhere I saw on Facebook. And it was like a 4.0. And I was like, that's pretty much about as effective as, as a heavy fart. But it's not where you think of earthquakes being. So things can happen where they're not expected. And again, it all comes in ranking with what is the risk probability, what do you prepare for. But tornado preparedness is pretty simple. Get away from windows and get into the most hardened part of the structure that you can, and that might mean you don't have a really great place to go. But whatever the best one is, know what it is. And if you live in an area with lots of tornado activity and you do not have a basement, I don't think it's going to the extreme to, talk, to, to think about investing in some sort of a hardened tornado shelter, whether that's what they call a frady hole or it's one of the above ground ones where they basically bolted into the concrete. Uh, they have stuff now where they I saw at a, a show, and I, I would really kind of like one of these. I just haven't been able to allocate the money for it in relation to the risk yet. Um, but they had pictures where an F-5 had hit, and every house it looks like nuclear bomb. It made me think of when I drove through uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and saw the wrath of that tornado from, I think, 2012. Just just complete, desolate destruction. And right in the middle of it is this metal box that had been installed in the family's garage and anchored down into the concrete foundation of the home. And the family went in there and when they came out, they saw what looked like a nuclear winter. But they were fine. They were unharmed. And... uh You know whatever you feel you need to do for your family, I think you should be willing to do. So next up for you, I've got another audio uh, segment and I've got links to the past uh, online audio, giving credit, of course, to the source uh, in the show notes I have for this one as well, this one coming off of NPR. And the, the headline here is, thousands of medallion holders each lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. Cities made millions selling taxi medallions. Now drivers are paying the price and John's comment on it, which is dead on, is another fake government created commodity in the new economy goes bust. So I'm going to play this for you and then I'll I'll come back and give you kind of my thoughts on it, uh, which you might be able to surmise a little bit. But I think there's be some things here that I'll point out uh, that a lot of folks probably wouldn't even think of.
4: Two scientific studies, tornado activity throughout the U.S. has shifted over the past several decades. Scientists say tornadoes are decreasing in frequency in traditionally prone places like Oklahoma and Kansas, but tornado frequency is increasing farther east in more densely populated areas. For more on this, I want to bring in CBS News contributing meteorologist Jeff Baradelli. Jeff, this doesn't sound like it's great news. I mean, I guess it's good news for the people that are going to be fewer tornadoes, but it doesn't sound like it's great news for people who live in areas that aren't prepared for it.
1: It, That's exactly right. So the shift is happening towards the southeastern United States and the Midwest. Now, the Midwest, they're used to tornadoes. Southeast, they also get tornadoes, but we seem to be getting a lot more in places like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Arkansas, places like Missouri. So because of that, these people are less prepared. And there's also another problem there. It's a lot more trees, so it's hard to see tornadoes coming. And by the way, climatologically speaking, tornadoes tend to happen at night more often in the southeast than they do in the Plain States. And then you kind of add to that the the fact that uh, the framed homes are are not really built for big tornadoes like they are in places like Moore, Oklahoma, let's say, where they get those big uh, EF4s and EF5s. So uh, there's really a a danger for disaster there. In fact, they calculate in this paper that uh, the chance for potential disaster goes up by 3 Times uh, because of this shift to the east that's uh, and, scary in the news. new Tornado Alley, if you will,
4: absolutely it's very scary for people yeah. in that region. Now, what sorts of climate changes are responsible for this? So here's
1: what's happening: uh, There's dry air that's been building in the deep Southwest, a, a persistent drought, and that dry air doesn't stay there. It kind of starts spreading out, so it seems to be pushing the dry line, which is typically where these tornadoes and severe weather initiates. Uh, anybody who's from the Plains States knows about the dry line once. Uh, side of it is moist it has gulf air warm moist air the western side is desert air and all that desert air seems to be progressing to the east so we're seeing a movement of what we call the 100th meridian or the 100th longitudinal line basically that means that drier air is moving further east the severe weather is moving east and it's also having an impact on Agriculture as well. So it's it's really having a big impact. Right. So this eastward
4: shift, then I am assuming, can you elaborate on how it's affecting agriculture?
1: Yeah. So the problem here is it's moved about 140 miles to the east. Columbia University this spring put out a, a whole article on this, and, and it really causes a problem for farmers because they rely on consistent weather and climate change causes a lot of extremes now we're not a hundred percent sure that what's happening with the tornado story that we just did is due to climate change but the lead researchers i talked to one of them today said it probably is climate change and columbia university also thinks that it's this man-made climate change that's causing this dry line or the 100th meridian to move further east and basically what that means for farmers is where you used to be able to plant corn it's harder now you have to plant wheat and there are farmers who are legitimately concerned about their future, uh, their lifestyle right now, and passing along their farms to their children, and, by the way, to the uh, viability of the towns where these farms exist. It's not so easy to transfer your crops like that. I mean, if
4: you've been planting one crop your whole life, it's not so easy to just suddenly up and change it.
1: It's true. And is that next crop that you plant as profitable? Right. You know, what kind of economic impact does it have to the families that run these farms and for the communities uh, in the area? So we are seeing that shift because... because... Because uh, climate change dictates uh, that it's likely to get drier in the deep southwest, and because of that, that drier will continue to expand to the east. And and it's likely also going to cause the frequency of tornadoes to continue to expand to the east. So will this
4: eastward expansion mean that the tornadoes will become deadlier? Because of the region that it's entering?
1: It's very possible, and again, that's because of, of a lot of factors. It's not just because there are more tornadoes in the southeast. It's because they're harder to see. They're wrapped in rain because they're they're containing gulf air. Right. In the Plain State, you can see tornadoes from dozens of miles away sometimes, or at least 10 miles away or, or so. But you know, when you're talking about places in the southeast, it, there's a lot of gulf moisture and a lot of heavy rain, and you can't see the tornadoes coming. So there's lots of reasons why they're more deadly in the southeast.
4: Now, Jeff, the El Nino forecast, yeah. Was released Thursday by Columbia University. Explain El Nino to us and what it tells
1: us about the upcoming winter. All right. So the premier forecast comes from the IRI, which is the International Research Institute at Columbia University. Uh, they put it out today. It's in conjunction with NOAA as well. And basically, El Nino is a warming of the surface waters in the Pacific. And right now, we're on the cusp of what looks to be uh, an El Nino. Uh, Columbia University says that their computer models are predicting about an 85-90 percent chance that there will will be an El Nino uh, starting in November, probably lasting through about April or so. Uh, That warmer water kind of changes the air currents uh, in the atmosphere and the jet streams. And oftentimes it has a big impact on the United States. This is considered this is going to be considered a moderate El Nino. Most likely, it means it's going to be wetter in Southern California. Probably that's the forecast. Wetter in the deep southwest through Texas into Florida, then maybe up the eastern seaboard. And here's why that becomes important, because once you get to North Carolina and north of that, all that cold air sometimes sometimes phases or mixes with all that moisture we can get some bomb you know, big snowstorms so, along the eastern seaboard, especially from New York City south. So
4: is that what we're expecting then, some huge snowstorms? Well, you never it's too know, early to tell? Well,
1: you never know if the timing is going to work out, but the ingredients right. would be there. Uh, it would be normal, let's say normal temperatures expected this winter in places like New York City. You'd also have uh, more moisture kind of creeping up the coast, and if they can come together, you can see some of your biggest snowstorms during El Nino years. At the same time, though, it makes the Pacific Northwest a little bit drier than normal, and a little warmer than normal everywhere in, like, the northern tier of states or from uh, Washington and Oregon eastward uh, straight across the Great Lakes or so. Lots of impacts expected. The one that we're looking for in New York City is the possibility of a a mega snowstorm along the eastern seaboard. Sometimes it Uh, happens during El Nino, sometimes it doesn't.
4: Not looking forward to that, but but in terms of (laughs) temperatures, it sounds like
1: they're expected to be pretty temperate. You know, usually it ends up being just slightly above normal, actually. So it may be warmer, but when that cold air meets that moisture, bang, you can get a big snowstorm. The
4: perfect storm. (laughs) Jeff, thank you so much for that.
0: So, I mean, obviously, I'm opposed to government interference at just about every level of life. I I really am. And, And this is a perfect example, though, of what I've been talking about for a very long time. As I moved from a small government libertarian all the way to the realm of anarchist uh, it upset a lot of people in this audience. I'm going to tell you flat out, like people thought I was doing that because it was uh, it was like a, a publicity thing, or it would make me more money, or something like that. That move hurt me. I lost a lot of listeners uh, when I when I made that switch, and I made that switch because I could not not make that switch. There was, and I'm not going to lie about what I really think. I'm, I'm, I mean, I will I will lose listeners, but I will not you know lose my integrity for being honest. And I became an anarchist because I came to the logical conclusion that hurting people and taking their stuff is wrong. And I have no right to hurt you or take your stuff, and therefore I can't elect somebody to do it at my behest. Right? I can't. So I can elect a person and, and grant them the ability to act on my behalf for things that I have a right to do, but not for things that I don't have a right to do. And I don't have a right to say, you know what, I want 20% of your income. And if you eat this plant, I want, to, I want you put in a cage. So I can't morally, I mean, I, mechanically, we have a mechanism to do it with. But morally, if I know that, I can't be part of it. That's not what I want out of the world. But one of the things I said, because people are like, it'll, ne- it'll never work or whatever. That's not what this is about. This is about morality. And what does work is creating parallel systems... To eliminate the need for government to do a thing, whatever that thing might be. Uber, Lyft, et cetera, are examples of successful anarcho movements. That's what they are. It is anarchy in action. And I know it doesn't look because it's all organized and they do background checks and there's a system and a rule and regulation with its internal and private, though. Private. And it's not 100% anarcho because, yes, they have tags and licenses and insurance that government requires as well instead of how they would choose to provide those services. But they have taken a thing that was a government monopoly. And that's what you have to understand. The only reason these stupid medallions had any value is because government mandated they have value. Government's exclusion of the rights of others to give people a ride in a car. Made them have value. What Uber and did, and the loophole that they just flew through like a soaring eagle was the concept that, yes, if I'm out soliciting uh, riders, then yes, you y- your law applies to me. But if somebody asks me to give them a ride, like if, if I call you up and say, hey, friend, I need a ride to the airport next week. Would you like to take me? And you go, yeah, I would. And I go, okay, fine. Uh, let me give you some gas money. What do you say, 25 bucks? And you go, yeah, sure. The government can't interfere with that. And while Uber and Lyft made that automated and created a means by which it could be promoted and made it a profession, it's still mostly what it is. And some cities and towns just yes, have banned it, but it's always come back to bite them in the ass. And you notice what the drivers are not asking for. None of these people are like, you know what, we want you to go put them out of business. No, we want you to buy back this piece of shit you sold us. That's not worth a damn thing anymore. That's what we want. And of course, the CEO, like, oh, we don't know what we could do. Uh, you could give the money back. That's what you could do. That would actually be the right thing for government to do here. Now, if, if you sold it, and the person that bought it paid a premium for it, I don't think the government should cover that. Whatever, like, they have a number, they know this one sold to this party for this much money, the government should refund that money to the current holder. They really should. Now, it's NPR, so I have to throw this bullshit, like this guy had a heart attack because of this. The guy probably had a heart attack because he ate shitty food and didn't exercise. Okay? He started putting on weight. Yeah, He should have went out and started driving for Uber and Lyft, is what he should have done. And most of them have. That's what people don't understand. A big reason a lot of these old taxi guys are not asking for the other side to be put out of business. They just moved over, but now they're holding on to this worthless piece of crap. And this is what disruption looks like. I'm not going to say that nobody gets hurt when things change. And this is why it's so hard to change things. There's so many things that we admit they're wrong and they shouldn't be that way. But what happens when we change them? Look at something like Social Security. Social Security is a disaster. It is a Ponzi scheme, and don't write me stupid emails and tell me it's not. If you look up what a Ponzi scheme is and you look at Social Security, it's the same thing. Just because government backs it doesn't change that. If government tells you that unicorns exist and writes on a piece of paper unicorns are now a thing, you know they don't. Until you can produce me a unicorn, I don't care what you put on paper, there is no unicorn. There's a picture of a unicorn somebody drew or CGI'd, but there is no actual unicorn. There's no Pegasus either. And there's no Pegasus unicorn. I don't know how those two things ever got conflated, but they have. Okay, That doesn't exist. And government can't make it exist. So government can't change something just because they say it's different, but they can create the illusion, and if people buy into it, fine. So what, what, that has to do with Social Security. Look, this is, this is how bad Social Security is. Most people do not know that you're putting somewhere between thirteen and fourteen percent of your income into Social Security, and if you make less than one hundred twenty thousand or whatever the cap's at now, you're putting that into all of your income. Most people don't know this because all they see is their Social Security deduction on their paycheck. What they don't know, and I think should, I, I would like to see this happen. I think employers, I don't think the government needs to make a law for this. I think employers, if they were smart, would want their employees to know all that they do for them. And if I were an employer, I would put what we put, and so I'll come up with a word for it, our matching contribution to your Social Security fund. And put that same number so they can see. It's double what you think it is for most people. Okay, so call it call it 13% of your income from the time you get your first job flipping a burger until they give you a gold watch if you get one at the end of your your, your, your time. Goes into the government. If you're self-employed, you know this because you have to match your own. You pay twice. Yes, I pay double on Social Security. Right, so I'm painful. I I matched it for employees when I had employees. So I'm painfully aware of it. If you take a person who is borderline above window liquor status. And they go to work for Walmart, and they start at, right now, $12 an hour. That's what Walmart pays as a minimum wage right now. And they're not even good, right? They, again, they're a borderline window licker. They're just good enough to keep their job for 30 or 40 years. And they move into kind of mid-tier management of a store, not even a region. They never make more than $60,000 in a year in their entire life. And if they had simply had a thirteen to fourteen percent deduction from their paycheck put into the most conservative investments that you can find, they would retire a multi effing millionaire. So security lets them retire with an income be well below the poverty line. Social Security is a mathematical failure. There is no economic or mathematical case that can be made for Social Security. The only thing we can do to make a case for Social Security is feels. What about the poor old people? First thing we should understand is Medicare is different from Social Security. So as far as health insurance, they have a different thing. So let's just not even talk about being sick and needing medicine. That's a problem too, but that doesn't have nothing to do with Social Security. So we're talking about providing an annuity income. That's what Social Security is. Okay? So, there are better ways to do that. But what's the problem now? It doesn't work for the person one or two years away from retirement, does it? We can't just make new money. We have to take money to give the money. So how do we decouple from this mess without hurting people? It's not easy. And we do have private retirement accounts and things like that. But because in this case, we did not have just a, a, a monopoly by default. That's what the taxi thing was there was a way to completely push that monopoly over. The social security thing applies to everybody and forces compliance, and there's your definition of actual socialism. The threat of violence at the point of a gun to ensure 100% compliance with something, whether it makes sense or not. That's what we have there. And it will take a hell of a disruption to push out of that, but what that disruption is is the ultimate failure of that system. We could come up with a system tomorrow where we could set basically three groups. This group, you will never get any Social Security. We're sorry we screwed you. Here's how you're going to buy your way out of it and transition to a private system. Group two, you guys are a bit older. You're going to get some. You're also going to buy your way out of the other side. And then this third group, you're too close. You're going to get what we promised you. We're sorry. And actually, you're getting the worst deal because you're going to have the least money in your retirement. But we'll keep our word to you. And we could do that tomorrow, but it would cost the government control and power. And they have a different type of control mechanism in place for this, so they can make it sustain itself for longer. But wherever and whenever we can do better than them, we should, Uber and Lyft showed us one model by which to do that. Another example is health shares, like John uh, Pugliano talks about. Government mandated health insurance, and they decided what health insurance needed to look like. Well, health chairs basically get to qualify as insurance but don't follow all the rules and limits that the government placed on them, and they're beginning to do a better job, and more and more people are migrating to them. And it's a voluntary choice. I don't think it's as big of a disruption yet as Uber or Lyft, but it has the potential. And I think that that's what we should be doing as freedom-loving individuals. How do we create parallel systems that compete with government, even when government has an unfair advantage? Government had a completely unfair advantage against Uber and Lyft, but Uber and Lyft saw the weakness. Get everywhere. Get into cities where people don't pay a million dollars for a taxi medallion. Get into cities where it's hard to even find an effing taxi first. Prove the model works, build the base, and then eat away at the government. And I'm sorry for the taxi driver that got screwed out of $200,000 to buy a medallion, but I also think, what you did was kind of stupid. It was kind of stupid. Just like it was kind of stupid for me to put all my Facebook eggs in the page basket. I should have built an interactive forum at the same time. We all make mistakes. And then, this is the thing about freedom. You get to live with your mistakes. I think the government should buy your tokens back. They're not going to. They're never going to. Now, you can play their game, and you can go issue a lawsuit against them, But I don't think you'd win that one. You're asking the state to penalize itself. It works sometimes. I don't think it would work here. But it's another example of the new economy disruption taking down even government. Here's why that's really important. (laughs) If the new economy can disrupt government that has the ability to use threat of violence at the point of a gun, then it can disrupt anything. And if this can be done in a taxi world which is one of the most tightly regulated and controlled things in these big cities to the point where it was it's it's true fascism because you have basically a, a kind of an organized crime ethos with you know some of the, like in Vegas the taxi companies have their own private security that went out and basically acted as, as, as thugs when Uber first started if you go listen to some of the old shows I did with Vin Armani on on this program he'll talk about how that was done how like they sent out guys with guns to shut down Uber. Plus, they had the state and their guns to shut down Uber. And they still won. So what is the biggest thing that I've been calling for as far as predicting where we would go in the future? The biggest single thing that I said would fall? The education system. The education system. If Uber and Lyft can take down New York City, Las Vegas, and San Francisco's taxi monopoly, The new age we live in can take down the the government school system, and it will. It's only a matter of time. Let's take another one. This will be a quick one. Um, I I am a big believer in that if you want to change people's opinions, that there's, there's, there's only two types of people that you're going to deal with. You're going to deal with people that, if they were Christian, and Jesus told them, Jesus appeared to them and said, you're wrong, they'd say, screw off, Jesus, I don't believe you. I mean, you're not, no matter what facts you present to them, no matter what kind of case you give them, they are never going to be open to an alternative view. And then you have people that are. And people that are are the ones that will listen to what you have to say, and then they'll check that shit. They'll check that shit. They'll say, hmm, I I, I wonder if that claim that that person made is true. And if that claim is true, it lends you credibility, and they might go a little further with you in the discussion, and they might actually change their mind. Those are the only two types of people you have to deal with on any given issue. Okay? And so it makes sense that the ones you need to address your message to are the second kind. There's no point in addressing your message to the first kind, which means that whatever you put out there to make your case better be based on fact, reason, and logic. I just saw a perfect example of having a valid case, but blowing your lead, start on Facebook with this Honduran caravan of 2,000, 4,000, 5,000, whatever number of people it is. I'm not even going to talk about the underlying issue of these people coming into our country and who's there, and are there terrorists or not, and are there organized crime, are there gang members. I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to say, let's say that both sides can make a case, okay? What is the right that's opposed to the entry leading with, right now, with the meme wars on Facebook? Picture of these people marching with Honduran flags leading them on the way to America that says, if you're marching with a flag and you're coming to America for help, this is an invasion because of the flag. It's not an invasion because of the flag. So I did a post. I said, I'd like to get ahead of those guys. And I only put it out on my personal page to see what would happen. Because I figure, you know me personally, you interact with me more there, these are people that are supposed to be thinkers, and some of the people that commented are people I know generally do think, but you get attached to this issue, and then you can't think. Here's what I said. I am actually not for letting these people into the country. I'm really not. Especially the way this is being done, and the concept that maybe they are being funded by Soros, and it's an orchestrated thing. Absolutely, positively, prop has a probability, not a definity, but a probability of being valid. Okay? But the flag. When refugees are marching through a country that they especially that they do not intend to stay in. So they're going from Honduras and they've probably gone through peace of Guatemala and through Mexico, they will they will often fly their flag. Not always, but this is a thing that is done by refugees. It is a symbol. Here's this is who we are. We mean no harm. We are going to another place of safety to, to, to try to be safe. We're, we're, we're refugees. And we're going to a refuge. We're not staying here. We're going somewhere else. Please let us pass. That's what that means. Holy crap. The pushback. Oh, I mean, your sources for Where did they get this? Why are somebody handing money out to them? And like, they just randomly... Look, okay, look, look. All of that might be valid. It has nothing at all to do with the claim that them holding up a flag represents them invading America as an invasion force. It's not what it is. Okay? It isn't. Even if it is an invasion, that does that's not what makes it an invasion. And well it doesn't matter and I was just looking look. (laughs) What did I say? There's only two types of people you can make your case to. The I will never agree with you, no matter what Infinity, even if Jesus, Buddha, and the Great Pumpkin appear to me and tell me you're right, I will still think you're wrong. No reason to talk to that person about that particular issue until they have a change in their life where they become open. The other group, they're willing to listen to your side. They are the minority, and that's what makes it important that your message be targeted and accurate to them. When you lead with an easily disproven fact, you blow all credibility and all chance of ever getting that person to take you seriously ever again. And I've seen it done over and over and over with issue upon issue. It makes me think going way back, years back, to the Food Safety and Modernization Act, which was a piece of crap of a bill. But what did people say? What were the Alex Jones people saying? They're banning backyard gardens. And I was the voice of reason going, no, they're not. But everybody jumped on board that bandwagon, and the piece of crap, piece of legislation that you probably had a good chance of stopping, passed. It passed. You can look up Tester Amendment on the Survival Podcast blog. Put that in the search box, and you will find an article that I wrote at the end of this thing where John Tester, a Democrat from Montana, who might hopefully lose his seat. Well, Jack, does that mean that you're... uh, rooting against the Democrats, I'm rooting against the incumbents. Okay? So, John Tester might get his ass sent back to the private sector uh, in this coming senatorial election. I do believe he's up for re-election. I could be wrong, but I think he is. I think it's one of the names I've heard batted around. Uh, but he introduced a amendment to that bill that, that exclusively said any concern under a half a million dollars a year in annual revenue is not affected by this piece of legislation. And people still were flipping their shit. Oh, you don't understand. They could change at any time. They could change anything at any time. That's like saying we can't have a law that says you're not allowed to shoot somebody in the head because they could change it to a law that says you're not allowed to shoot at a target. The second thing is a real probability. They've always been out to take away the Second Amendment, but a law against shooting somebody in the face doesn't have anything to do with that. Logic and reason. And please, when you're trying to convince people of something, lead with logic and reason. And if you see something... That, that, that outrages you before you share it, before you commit it to memory, before you make it part of your repertoire. Fact check that shit. Fact check that shit. It's not because I don't want you to look like a dumbass. It's because I do want you to be effective. And you can't be effective with dumb shittery. Now, what you'll say is, well, a lot of people listen to it. The people that listen to it are the first kind. They're the first kind. They just happen to be on your side. It's good for, for, for venting, you know, fermenting anger. It's good for motivating the side that already agrees with you. But it's useless. It's, it's fundamentally useless for changing opinions. And I'll leave you with a new Jack quote. A new Jack Law of Life. If I, I just did 30 Laws of Life on Instagram. If, if, if I ever decide to do 30 more, and it probably will happen, this would probably be Law 31. And remember, my laws of life are not things that I have written or come up with. Some of them are, some of them aren't. They're things that I've adopted into my life. And the first part of this you've heard before somewhere. The second part is my unique spin on it, and it applies here. A person is smart, people are stupid. Okay, you got that? A person is smart, but people are stupid. I'm going to assume you understand that. I'm going to give you the, the, the jack portion of it. So whenever you're reacting to something or taking an action, ask yourself, am I behaving like a person or am I behaving like people? If you're behaving like people, the higher probability is that you're doing something stupid. Okay? That's, that's a fundamental reality there. The mob is always stupid, but the individual within the mob, when they turn their attention to do something in, inherently, most people are actually smart. Now, some are smarter than others, and I know you're thinking, man, Jack, come on, there's some really dumb people. Aha! person is smart. People are stupid. And you're going to say, I've known some dumb persons. And I'll agree. I'll accept it. I'm just assuming that's not you. I'm assuming you're not dumb as a person. But I'm assuming you, like myself, like all of us, when we start behaving like a group of people rather than an individual thinking person, we tend to do stupid things. So don't do it. With that, I've got one more segment, but I'm going to push it all the way to the end. I want to just real quick reach out to you today and remind you that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at a website called tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there, of course, you see all the stuff that I've ever reviewed on Amazon. You can see them in alphabetical order uh, based on categories. You can see them in chronological order based on the most most recent ones. You can always use the tag clouds there uh, to find related items and stuff like that, too. Um, but again, the, the important thing to understand with all the stuff I review on Amazon and all the stuff I recommend, um, it, it's all stuff that's in my home. You come here, I look like a, a a, a T-SPAZ commercial, like an infomercial. Look, here's this, here's that. It's, it's all here. If I wouldn't spend my money, I wouldn't ask you to. I'm bringing one around again today that belongs in your DFAC. Do you have a DFAC? What's a DFAC? Okay. If you have a dog, if you don't have a dog, you don't need a DFAC. A, a FAC is a first aid kit. A DFAC is a doggy first aid kit. Uh, This is a product called Zymox uh, Topical Spray. It's a 1% uh, hydrocortisone, but it also has some stuff in it that uh, I I think is is remarkable in what I've seen it do. Um, There are uh, three different enzymes, uh, which I'm not going to try to pronounce due to my inefficiency at speaking Latin, but... I have seen this stuff work miracles for my dogs, specifically my dog, Charlie. He's a pit bull mix. He's got very short hair. He gets rashes, like kind of a diaper rash area type thing. Um, sooner or later, he's going to end up getting stung by fire ants. He chews out his paws. He has things like that. Uh, every time I've had an issue with him and I've used this product, It's worked. If you read the reviews on Amazon, there are people, you can almost hear their tears in their, in, their, in their testimonials on this, of what it meant for their dog. There are people that I've, I've read, you know, like, I spent years and hundreds and hundreds of dollars a year going to the vet trying to fix this problem my dog has with hotspots or whatever, and it, it just, I, there, nothing worked. And, and this product works. Um, I, if you go through the reviews, you will find a lot of thank gods for this. It's, it's just that good. It also, now, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not recommending that you do this. I'm going to tell you it is, in the end, if, if it can work for a dog, it probably can work for a person. Again, this is my opinion. It is not my advice. But a couple of years ago, when I first found this stuff, I was outside working, and I was working around my aviary. And I was working with hardware cloth, which, of course, is sharp and cut. So I ended up with these two little prick marks in my hand. Like, just, like, very close to each other. And it looked like a tiny snake bite. And I thought it was funny. I told my wife, look, it looks like I got bit by a tiny snake. And I, I thought I had just jabbed it onto the hardware cloth without noticing it. But it was close enough together that, like, well, maybe they were bent because they was too close together for how far apart, you know, the, the hardware cloth was. Uh, if, if it was straight. And, you know, like a day later, it's like, obviously something bit me, and it's probably a spider. And it starts to get necrotic, and it starts spreading. And I'm putting confery on it and it's not doing anything. As great as Comfrey is, something in there, like Comfrey heals, but it doesn't really fix things that are like fungal or venom-based or something like that. I put this stuff on there, and it it went away almost instantly. It took like two days, and it was gone. Uh, I've also used it on ant stings and stuff like that. Um, I think it's a good dual-purpose thing, but again, my opinion, not my advice. You have to decide that for yourself. Talk to a doctor if you want to or what have you. But the reason I brought this back around today is I happened to notice this morning when I got up, Charlie's got a case of doggy diaper rash again, and he's got a couple spots on his paws, and I realized we had run out, and I didn't resupply. Two is one, one is none, so I bought two this time. I recommend you consider doing the same thing. On that, they have an option to select two. Don't do it. Select individually two. When you select a two-pack, it like triples the price. And it goes to a single vendor, and you don't get your shit like, you know, regular Amazon speed. So I don't know why that happens sometimes, but just select quantity two, not the two-pack. Again, Zymox Pet Spray with Hydrocortisone, TSP item of the day. And shout-out to my buddy David, fellow dog lover and awesome friend, uh, who even made me think that way. He said, gee, you know, this is kind of like might work for people. And I went, wow, yeah, you know, I should have thought of that myself. But sometimes a person is smart, <laughs> people are stupid. <laughs> anyway, with that. Let's talk about a, a much more somber thing. I have two emails here, and they came in within days of each other, um, two days, in fact, of each other. The first one comes from John Adam. And John Adam is the guy that does my song lists for me. And a while back, he said, do you want me to put together like a contingency song list when some of these talks about suicide come up? And I, I said, yes, yes, I would. And I'm going to be playing one of those songs instead of the standard lineup today. And when he when he looked that up, he said "I w- I was – Impacted and found it sad and profound. How many songs there are that address this issue? And I'm going to play the first song off of um, off of that list for you today. And that's kind of my lead in here. But I wanted to send you uh, then. This that happened like a month and a half ago, and then I just got this email from John. He said, "Hey Jack, you often mention how the song of the day will match the show topic." or how things line up and occur in strange coincidences. Last night while at work, uh, such a strange alignment occurred that I thought it was worth sharing. In case you don't remember, I am a sergeant for California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. January will mark my completion of my 25th year, and at that time it's safe to say I have seen the best and worst of this job entails, as well as changes and trends that seem to cycle politically. Yesterday when I came to work, I saw someone had printed an article and taped it behind, my, behind the desk. Uh, I didn't pay much attention to it, as this is fairly common. During a slow time, I was sampling music for the Song of the Day segment when I came across a song from Styx from 2003 that dealt with suicide intervention. After adding it to my work list for you, I sat back to contemplate what when would be a good time to pull put it in a lineup. For some reason, I looked over at the article attached to the wall and decided to read it, and admittedly got a little choked up. The article was written by a captain at another facility, He shared the story of his friend's suicide attempt and to be proactive in helping your co-workers during hard times. I knew I wanted to share this with you because it applies to all people who work these kinds of stressful jobs. Then I emailed the author for permission to share, which was granted. Attachment number one is a copy for you to share on the show. He asks only that you not share his first name. So I will... Create a version of that attachment and put it in a, in a link so you can read it if you want to. Um, I'm not going to read it online. Uh, that was in the end of things, though, coming full circle for the night. During my second shift, I worked with an old friend, and we got to discussing the article and started naming off coworkers. We have known that committed suicide. It was depressingly high at five. He then had me read a Rolling Stone article about an officer in the High Desert State Prison that was hazed to the point of suicide, which I considered uh, for you in attachment number two. I can say from experience that this type of ostracizing occurs, making high strep job tenfold worse. I am thankful I got a second chance at a different prison. Uh, The contrast between the two articles relates highly emotional roller coaster these types of jobs inflict on someone and two paths people can take in dealing with fellow human. Uh, Somewhere in this is an important message that you can extract, hopefully, uh, to help someone. If you need any follow-up, feel free to get a hold of me. Thanks, John. And he gave me some additional resources. I will provide all of these resources in the show notes for you in their own group. But again synchronicity is when I know I need to be talking about something. So two days later, I got this email from Mike, and Mike is a gentleman I know firsthand personally. He actually uh, house sat for me this summer when I went on vacation with my wife. He said, Hello again. I want to share something that falls directly in line with the Rewind episode about raising resilient children. Yesterday morning, Friday, 10-19, I finished that episode on my morning walk and made a mental note to revisit some of the things with my wife and I, what we do with our kids. Before I got a chance to call home, I got a text from my older daughter. One of the students at her high school brought a razor knife with him to school, went into the hall after lunch, and used it to slit his own throat. After more info was released, it was believed to be a cry for help. He is now in the hospital recovering. Now, instead of revisiting things with my wife, I'm going to talk to each of the girls separately about how the ripples that self-inflicted murder create. What might drive someone to do that and alternatives for it? I'm in no way concerned about my girls doing something like that, but I'm sure this boy's parents thought the same. The need for this type of discussion at home is growing more imperative by the day. Imagine if that family had heard your message. One conversation may have prevented what could have been irreparable. I know you have been told this many times. What you do matters, Jack. Thanks a great deal. You help people by giving them the tools to help themselves. Thanks, Mike. Mike, thank you for sending that. Um. In the case in school, it probably had something to do with bullying. The song that I'm going to play for you today has, it's directly addressed at that. Um, The prison guard thing, not directly in some cases, but in other situations, yes. You heard that a, a hazing caused a man to take his life. A man that was willing to take the job of guarding prisoners ended up killing himself because of the way his fellow guards treated him. Um, we have a suicide epidemic in America. America, despite our faults, is the land of the free and the home of the brave in reality. There is probably not a better place you could live on the planet today than America. And I don't believe we have 100% equality across all classes, colors, races, etc. But you won't find a place where a person is treated better who is a minority than America today. And that swings both ways, but I'll, I'll leave that alone for the purpose of this discussion. And yet, we have an incredibly high suicide rate. And we have a lot of different reasons for that. One is a lack of resiliency, but another is a lack of civility. And one of the big things that Mike kid on that I think is really important there is what happens when you kill yourself. What happens when you kill yourself? I think a great um, thing to watch and some of it's really hard to watch. But the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. Specifically the first season more than the second. Understanding what you do to other people when you take your own life. And what you may have done to someone who takes theirs without even knowing it. And one of the things in that show, and I, I, I you know, it's a movie series type thing, so it's not going to be 100% realistic. And there's some things about it that I, I don't find realistic at all. But one of the things that I find in are quite realistic is that this girl in that story that kills herself had her problems. And, 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 you know, there's some, I don't want to give away the plot line. There's some things that happened that are pretty horrific to her in the plot line. But in some other way, she had her problems in ways that, you know, were just like, this girl, the character they developed could have done this had that one horrible thing not happened. But there was something that could have happened that might have prevented it. A lot of the people that she left messages for, because 13 reasons, there's 13 people that she felt were part of her decision. And some of those people did some horrible things to her. Some really didn't. They just didn't hear her cry for help. Because her character, and this is the believable part, like many people that end up in the situation, was basically saying, give me a reason not to do this. Somebody give me a reason not to do this. Well, if you're ever in that situation, I'm going to give you a reason not to do this. What you do matters. And what you do can matter for good or for bad. And there is no world in which when you take your life, you don't seriously hurt other people. And even if right now, if you think they deserve to be hurt, that's not the way to do it. That's not the way to handle it. It really isn't. And there are people in your life that you will speak to, that you won't know, but what you say to them matters. I had a a friend in high school named Clint, and uh, Clint was the guy that, he was the guy that was everybody's friend. He was the guy that was always happy. He was the guy that was always kind of the life of the party. And he was the kind of friend where, like, he was a school friend of mine. Like, I hung out with him at school. We really didn't hang out outside of school. We had our own kind of groups in that world. And one day before we went back to school, one day before we returned to our senior year, he killed himself. Shot himself in the head in his bedroom. And the story was, it was over a girl that left him. I don't know why he did it. I do not think it was an accident based on, after I talked to his parents, um, how it was done. Um, but. I don't think it was over a girl leaving him. There had to be something deeply wrong, and I never saw it. And, you know, I have not held that against myself. The last time I saw this kid, I was 16 years old. You don't know shit from Sean when you're 16. But I just feel like there was somebody in his life that could have seen something and said something. So if you think somebody needs help, be there for them. Talk to them. Be willing to listen to them. Sometimes that's all that's necessary. And get them help. And if you have any thoughts like this, get help. And this song's about hearing that one thing that makes you think it's worth continuing to struggle. It's worth holding on. It's worth finding meaning. The song is called This Song Saved My Life. And it's by a band called Simple Plan. And... Whatever you need to hear, just assume you've heard it if you're in this place. And go, go. don't be afraid to get help. And do understand, your absence matters. And if you die of cancer or in a car wreck or something like that, or you get old and you pass away, your family will deal with it in a totally different way, no matter how bad it is. No matter how young you are, if it's something tragic that's just the fate of what happens, people will heal. People will deal with it. They'll hurt, but they'll heal. You do this to somebody you love, and they'll be telling somebody about it 35 years from now, and they still won't be over it. So just don't do it. Just don't. Because it's one of those decisions you can never take back. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
2: I want to start by letting you know this Because of you, my life has a purpose You help me be who I am today I see myself in every word you say Sometimes it feels like nobody gets me Trapped in a world where everyone hates me There's so much that I'm going through I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you I was broken
4: than we used to be. You're my escape when I'm stuck in a small town. I turn you up whenever I feel down. You let me know like no one else that it's okay.